Hello, this is Yarrow, and welcome to Vested Capital, episode number 10, featuring my guest, Nathan Berry, the founder and CEO of ConvertKit. Vested Capital is a podcast about how people make money, build capital, and then put their capital to work. I interview startup founders who've enjoyed big exits, angel investors, venture capitalists, crypto and stock traders, real estate investors, and leaders in technology, which Nathan certainly is. In this episode, we go back in time and do a thorough deep dive into Nathan's history. And this is a long episode. We're almost at an hour and a half in interview time. So we got to spend quite a bit of the story with Nathan's early years running an agency in design, which eventually led to uh, actually working for a software firm, which exposed him to a little bit of software design, both in the job itself and on weekends when he was working on side projects, developing apps with some of his friends. That actually led to a teaching business, funnily enough. He, he wrote a book about what it takes to do good design, front-end design in particular, UX, UI, user interface design for apps and websites. And that led to Nathan being one of the first people ever to publish a book on that topic around, I think it was 2012 when he talks about it. And that was his gateway to becoming an information publisher. So a person who has an email list, who sells digital products. You would have heard plenty of stories from people like that on the Vested Capital podcast and my show in the past as well. In fact, I've been one of those people for many years. So Nathan was in that space in the design world. He actually launched his first book and made about $19,000 in sales. So he breaks down how he was able to do that with his first ever information product, which led to him creating a business that made about $250,000 a year at its peak. And that was actually the gateway to launching ConvertKit, which is now his, you know, multiple eight-figure business. I should say, yeah, eight figures. It is eight figures. 28 million is his multiple eight figures. And it's an amazing story because he saw this need in the world of email marketing that was mostly around design to begin with. So being a person who's interested in front-end design, he wasn't really pleased with the options available in terms of email autoresponder services and how clunky they were to use. So he decided to build one himself. Very ambitious, but you know, he was a young guy. He dived in and for a number of years, actually, didn't do a whole lot of sales. He was sort of sitting around $2,000 a month in ARR. It was a side gig while he was still running his teaching business. And then he decided to go all in, focused on ConvertKit, and that led to some serious explosive growth. Now, I'm not going to recount what he said in the interview, but you really need to listen to the section where he talks about ConvertKit's growth from 2000 a month all the way up to about... Uh, I mean, really up to today, but in particular from 2000 to 500,000. So from sort of a basic business making a, you know, maybe 50,000 a year to making 6 million a year, he breaks down in some detail the different marketing strategies and tactics. They use some good detail too. He breaks things down where I really felt like he was being generous with his explanations of what worked for them. So a lot to learn there from Nathan in terms of just growth hacking a startup. And then uh, towards the end of the show, we talk about capital in terms of, you know, what's the plans for the future? Why hasn't Nathan taken on investors? What is he optimizing for? He went from giving profits to his team to now giving equity. They're actually in the moment doing a secondary raise. So some of the team members can exit some of their, their shares. So lots to cover. It really goes from the beginning to the end. I think you'll love this story with Nathan. It was a lot of fun to talk to him. 
Before I press play, if you have not done so yet, please check out inboxdone.com. If you're the kind of person who is dealing with too much email or just needs help with anything that's kind of around your inboxes, whether that's social media inboxes, help desk inboxes, or your email, or the associated tasks that get triggered when a person sends you an email. So anything to do with updating software, forwarding messages to team members, just coordinating projects, inboxdone.com will provide you with an inbox manager or two or three to help you deal with all those emails. So organize them, build a system, build some documentation, build a knowledge base, reply to your emails and coordinate with your team and software that you use. So you can effectively step out of all that kind of day-to-day to-do list that gets generated within your inbox. And you can instead spend time growing your company or having a holiday, spending time with your family, writing that book that you've always wanted to write. It all becomes an option when you get better systems and talented people, specialists running your inbox. That's inboxdone.com. Check it out if that's something you might need. Now here is Nathan Berry and the ConvertKit story. All right, Nathan, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So as most people probably know, you're the founder of ConvertKit, probably the primary reason I've got you on the show here. Obviously a huge success as we record this, you're, you're throwing out a number about $28 million in ARR, which is huge. Congratulations. That's such an achievement. I actually am really curious about hearing more about ConvertKit's origin story because having been in the world of information marketing since for me, like I was, I got started with an email list probably around 2004. Four, I think was my first list. And I remember you guys showed up into what was already a crowded space at the time. So I can't wait to hear about why you even decided to enter such a crowded space at the time. But before we we do any of that, you want to just give us a, I was asking you before the show for a highlight reel of how big is ConvertKit become and, and, you know, what does it, what does it do for any of those who, who might not know what it is? Yeah. So ConvertKit is a online marketing, email marketing platform for creators. So think of creators as anyone from like bloggers, podcasters, musicians, artists, filmmakers, all of that. So we have like a whole range of people like Amy Vitale is this incredible National Geographic photographer who uses us to stay in touch with her list. Tim Ferriss, Arnold Schwarzenegger runs his newsletter on ConvertKit. Cool. Tim McGraw, Leon Bridges. We just acquired a company called FanBridge, which is email marketing for musicians. And so that brought over a few few thousand musicians to the platform. I was actually really curious. Uh, I'll ask you it now. With, with FanBridge, I was reading about your acquisition there. Yeah. And there was a part of me going, I wonder if Nathan made this acquisition because he wants to hang out with more cool musicians. You know, <laughs> Was there a little bit of that in there? <laughs> There's a little bit of that for sure. <laughs> okay. It's one of those things. So maybe two years ago, we noticed that we were getting traction in the music space kind of by accident. We actually got Tim McGraw as a customer. And that was one where it was like, oh, like there's a big name. How'd that, you know, it came about through connections and and they were on MailChimp and, you know, it was a natural fit to move over. But then we started putting in some more deliberate effort and just realized we could build this company for any type of audience, right? And I think so many people who get into SaaS, they kind of luck, somewhere between luck into their customer base and default into it. Where like you saw an opportunity and so then you started serving those customers. And before you know it, you're like the biggest real estate SaaS company ever. And you're like, but I don't actually like realtors, (laughs) you know, or or something like that. Right. And we realized that we didn't just want to go wherever we were naturally pulled. Like, for example, because I think a lot of your audience has been around information marketing for a long time. I think Infusionsoft as a company, you know, now keep, they got pulled very much 
just like whichever direction things went. And so they ended up with a lot of like, there's like online marketing and then there's the sleazy version of online marketing and there was good money for them in it. And so they were totally okay with those people using it. And then they, like they became very much known for that type of customer base, which hurts deliverability and it hurts like all of these other things. Right. And we just realized that we didn't want to go wherever we were naturally pulled. We wanted to be very deliberate about the types of customers we served. And it was going to be the creators that inspire us. We weren't going to be the company that like years later, we were like, it's a great business, but we don't like the work, you know, or we don't like the industry. And so about two years ago, we had this conversation of like, well, who would we be most excited about to have as customers? And we had the like authors and bloggers and, you know, all kinds of people we were super excited about. But then like musicians stood out as like, oh, these are creators that really inspire us. So we realized, oh, well, that's a good business too. Like, why don't we bring them into the fold as well? And so kind of the last, I'd say 18 months in particular has been expanding in music. And so you get all kinds of people like Land Bridges, Mandy Moore, a whole bunch of other Def Leppard now uses convert. You know, it's like, it's funny, just all like the list just goes on and on. And it just came from a deliberate focus in that area. So that's a bit of a tangent, but it's just, I think as people build their businesses, too much of it happens on autopilot or where there's momentum and rather than deliberate effort. And so just think about, you know, years from now, who do you want your customers to be and what mm-hmm. steps you need to put in place now to make that happen? Yeah, such a good point. Not just from the side of, I want a certain type of client, but also mm-hmm. where is the market going? I know, for example, with my own company at the moment, uh, Inbox Don, we're getting some traction with accountants, which makes me go, okay, let's let's become the email management service for accountant firms. But then I'm like, do I want to spend all day basically pitching this service to this right. world. You know, it's like there's a personal decision as well as a business decision in there. Obviously, I don't have to be the one who's doing the marketing forever as well. So, there's that to think about. But Mandy Moore, it's just kind of cool Def Leppard to go out there and say, yeah, yeah well, these are our clients. So I'm sure that helps to bring right. in more clients as well. Just to close the loop, I know I asked you how big Converge right. actually is. So, 28 million runway. There's some other big numbers yeah. you can report back. Yeah. Yeah. So, we're 65 people on the team. Uh, we've always been a paid product up until about a year and a half ago, we launched a free version. So we now have 36,000 paying customers and about 400,000 free users. And so that's been growing really quickly. Yeah, those are the main the main stats. Like we're public with all of our metrics. So if you go to convertkit.bearmetrics.com, you can see like MRR and churn and everything else in real time. Just because I wanted to leave those breadcrumbs for anyone else building a company, like following along. So if they're curious, like, hey, I'm at 20000 a month in revenue and we're really struggling with churn. Like, I wonder what ConvertKit's churn was at 20000 a month, right? And so you can actually go back and filter back to like 2015 when that was true and see what all our numbers were then. So yeah, we're an open book about, about everything. I think that's great. I think it possibly helped you early on too with perhaps, you know, spreading the word, getting more coverage. Coming from myself, the world of blogging, you know, you go back 15 years, it was all the rage for every blogger to kind of do their income report. Obviously, you know, Pat Flynn and John Lee Dumas kind of really made it a thing, but everyone was doing it no matter how much money you made. It, it almost became, you know, boring, I hate to say, but right. for a blogger to do it. But you started doing it with, with a SaaS startup, which I think was also really, it's just great. I think the transparency is fantastic. There's some risk with it too, but listen, I want to go back in time and, and talk a little bit about your early years and, and then also the start of ConvertKit. So, are you a, a Boise Boise boy, boy, I can say this as a tongue twister. Boise boy, <laughs> born and raised in yes. Idaho. <laughs> so I grew up about 45 minutes to an hour outside of Boise up in the mountains. And so I grew up roaming the hills. I was homeschooled, have a bunch of siblings. So like common activities for us were like 
making swords in my dad's shop and like playing nights as we roamed the hills and all that. But, yeah, and then I've, you know, moved around the Boise area, traveled a whole bunch, but always, always lived or had a home base here. Does that mean there wasn't much internet up in the hills or was that available? We had dial up internet, you okay. know, for too, for too long. I remember the, <laughs> the 28K modem. I got into, I got into web design in high school actually, because a, a girl that I dated was like making websites on GeoCities, you know, and like little animated GIFs. And like, and I remember like watching that and going, wait, so hold on, you type what into notepad and then refresh. And then how does that work? You know, and then like getting books in the yeah. library and, and I just, I love the immediate feedback loop of you can make this change in code and then it would immediately show up over here and like you'd make this change and then show up and it wouldn't do anything over here and you'd have to like dig in and find out why it didn't work. So like as a 15 year old, that was tons of fun. And then I got Photoshop and started playing from there. Actually, that was pirating Photoshop on dial up internet is remarkably difficult. <laughs> Yeah, big download. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Well, I remember looking for keys. It's always find the, the key to open up the software. Yeah, we shouldn't be saying this on a public recording, though. But anyway, that's your limitations. Uh, yeah, true. <laughs> who would have thought? And Photoshop's a SaaS now, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. So you're dating yourself by saying GeoCities too, which which makes you kind of like a, a late mid '90s sort of web design. You know, getting interested in that. Did you at 15? Was there like plans in your mind to go to university? Like, did you have a career in mind or anything like that back then? Yeah, the first career that I wanted to have was as a landscaper. So that didn't end up happening. I even like early in high school, like one of my dad's friends had a landscaping business. So I like did you know, work for him and I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. It's not all what I'm, <laughs> what I ended up doing though. I own a farm now. So maybe there's some like tie in that arc. Let's see. Probably about that high school time. I yeah started getting projects to design like a simple logo or a really simple website, freelance gigs for like a hundred bucks. 300 bucks, 500 bucks. And so that was what I was doing then. As a kid, all of my friends were older than me. And so I kept trying to keep up with them. And so I actually like the combination of that and being homeschooled, I realized that basically I was still going to be in high school and all my friends were going to graduate and go to college. And I'd still have like a couple years of high school left. And so I went to my parents and said like, Hey, is a high school four years or is it a fixed amount of work? And I had older siblings. And so they, my parents had already defined like what high school meant, like the curriculum and, and all of that, even being homeschooled. So they like said, no, it's, it's a fixed amount of work. Like go ahead and here's the list if you want it. And so I spent, I guess it was from when I was 14 to like 15 and a half or 13 to 15, somewhere in there doing all of high school. So I remember thinking like, as we drove from Boise to Seattle for like family road trip, thinking like, well, I'm bored for this eight hours in the car. I'm also bored while I'm doing algebra. So why don't I combine those two? And I do like a month's worth of algebra on an eight hour drive. And I have like my older brother would be there. So I'd be like, David, how do you, you know, like I'm stuck. How do you do this? And he, you know, is pre iPad. So <laughs> he had nothing better to do than help me with algebra. So wow. I ended up graduating when I was 15 and started going to college then first for graphic design and then marketing and then dropped out when I was 17, when I started getting like, Basically, I got my first $10,000 web design gig and was like, I'm here going to college to learn how to make money. I think I've learned how to make money. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm on to doing the next thing. So, okay. So, you must have been like, what, 18, 19 when you're landing these $10,000 clients? I was 17. 17. Wow. Yeah. Just so 
I dropped out of college before most people drop out of high school. That's <laughs> so. crazy. <laughs> okay. A few questions surface there. How do you convince someone at 17 to pay you $10,000 to do something? What's the phrase on the internet? No one knows that you're a dog. Uh, right. <laughs> so, you had this picture of a guy with a beard and a mustache on your, on your profile, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, it was, it was also before video calls. And so, we'd get on calls and I probably sounded really young, you know, but... Yeah, it was one of those things. I'm realizing that contract was referred by someone else who worked with one of their competitors. So basically, it was software for a sign language interpreting agency out of Sacramento. And so they basically needed software to manage their freelance interpreters going to like doctor appointments and you know all the things that they would do. And so they went to one of their competitors who they were friendly with, you know, in a different, I guess in a different market and basically said, Hey, you have software for this. How did you do it? And they're like, Oh, well, we hired this guy, David in Idaho to do it. And David was my friend. And so they went to David and he was like, Oh, well, I actually have a non-compete. Like I, I can't help you because it's your competitors and all of that. And so he referred them to me and we'd done like with some contract web developers, I'd done some, I did websites and like small web applications. And this is the first like real web application. And I did all the design and HTML and CSS and like the business side of it. And then a contract developer wrote the back end of it. So it was still good profit. Like I cleared like five grand on that one. Okay. At 17, that's like huge money. Yeah. It was pretty great. So take us forward then. Does that grow into a full-blown agency that you ran for a number of years? It was basically freelance for a few years, basically staying at that level, like enough money to earn a living. I mean, it was incredible for me. Looking back, I'm like, okay, I think I was making like $50,000 a year or something. Now, what happened was in, it would be 2008, I just had like my best months of freelancing. I think I've been freelancing for three years then. And so, you're 20 had, years old at that point? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 19, somewhere in there. <laughs> you're really only 22 right now, aren't you, Nathan? That's, that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> For anyone curious, I'm all of 31 as of okay. a week ago. <laughs> so, so let's see. I had lined up a bunch of freelance projects. Just had like my best month ever of like $12,000 of work in a single month. The thing that I learned about freelancing though is that you're like, oh, here's the contracts I have signed. And here's the money I have coming. But it always gets delayed. And so you like keep counting it in the same month, but you're realizing like you're counting the same. You're like, oh, this is great. I've got like $10,000 coming in. And like a month later, you're like, hey, I've got $10,000 coming in, but like 8,000 of it is what you expect the previous month from finishing the contract or whatever, you know? And so it's like not as good as you hoped it would be, <laughs> you know? But Still, anyway, so... At 20 years old, you, you know, 8,000 a month is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. I went to, on a trip with my girlfriend at the time. Well, I guess we were engaged then. We went on a trip to South Africa with some other friends and spent five weeks traveling all around, had a great time, and then came back. And I went to pick up all the conversations with clients and they were all like, Hey, I don't know if you know, but it's 2009 and we're in the middle of a recession and like, we're not spending money until our clients spend money. So I went from like top of the world with my freelancing to, you know, I've earned a month and a half off and then coming back and like, there's no work to be had. Wow. Did you not see the GFC happening while you were traveling in Africa or... I don't think I knew enough to pay attention to it. Fair enough. At that point, you don't have the trend or data points. It's just like your own localized thing. And so, 
or it's like that's the thing that affects like normal businesses but i'm on the internet what i didn't realize is like i was building websites for like construction companies and remodelers and you know all of those and they were basically like everything is dried up so i actually ended up taking a job with the one client that still had work and i took a full-time role with them and they were a software company and i ended up staying in there for three years and during that time i got into one learned how to work on a team right because i had to i thought i knew everything right as one does at 18 19 20 years old but, you know, I'd never like worked on a team, worked in an office in that environment, had a salary, things like that. So mm-hmm. that was a great experience. Was it a great experience though? Or was that a bit of a struggle? Because to go from kind of being your own boss to having a boss and having set hours and set salary, that must have been a bit of a shock, no? It was both. It was really helpful to have the salary and especially at that time and to have coworkers and so much of that, especially because the consistent business side of freelancing was not something that I was really good at. And so having like a set salary was really nice. But I remember times that I really struggled. Like I remember one time in particular of like something had come up and we were still doing a little bit of freelancing and I'd like just left the office to go do the other thing. And like my manager, when I got back, I'm like, hey, hey man, you can't do that. <laughs> you know? And I was like, what do you mean I can't do that? <laughs> and so like everything, it was a, a blessing and a curse. During that time while I was there, the iPad came out in 2010 and so we built an iPad app the day the iPad was released or like, you know, had it ready. So that was an incredible experience to learn iOS development and design. And that turned into my next side hustle of like building apps and selling them in the app store. And that was really fun. I got to the point where I was making averaging between two and $4,000 a month of sales in the app store for various apps. I had a habit tracking app. I had a flashcards app. I think every beginner developer makes a flashcards app like just out of obligation or something. Mm-hmm. I also had an app that was for kids with autism who didn't speak or someone who had a stroke and lost the ability to speak. And so it had like these tiles on it and you would like select the tiles that had a, an image or a short phrase. And then it had synthesized speech. And so it would like verbalize that phrase. And there was all this dedicated PCs that were made for that, that were like $7,000. And so with the iPad, you could mm-hmm. like have this great hardware and everything else and, and an app that, you know, is so much better. So that was probably my best money maker. This was after you left the job at the software development This firm? was on the side while I was at the job. Okay. Side so basically there were a few of us there that like work needed us to learn Objective-C and iOS development. And so we do it at work and then we all spin up our side projects and keep coding and figuring it out on the weekend which work was happy about because then we'd show up on Monday and we're like, Hey, we know this much more about iOS development than we did on mm-hmm, Friday. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so they were like, yeah, great. Keep figuring out these projects. And there were two developers there who I would help them with design on their apps because that was my career and they would help me with code. We weren't partners in any of that way. We were like, I guess, advisors for each other's projects. Like I remember coding my habits app and getting stuck in like five different directions where you like code as far on this problem as you can. You like can't figure it out. So you work on this feature over here, keep doing that. And then like on a Saturday going over to my friend Chris's house, who's a coworker and be like, okay, here's all the problems that I have. And he would like be like, okay, look into it. And they'd be like, all right, computer science 101. Let's explain number types, you know, cause I'm like using a float when I should have been using an integer, you know, or like some of these things and just not having that like computer science background. So, right. so you're becoming an engineer almost. 
Yeah. We're yeah. working on it. I never like got so far into it that people should hire me to program, but I was always good at interface design and, and then any front end code. Mm-hmm. That was my world. Okay. So this is a side project. So you're taking your salary now and you're selling all these apps. So you must be accumulating you know, a bit more money at, at that stage. Were you thinking, this is great. I'm going to retire or you know, I'm going to put this into my first home purchase. Like, What was your financial right. mindset around that time? Yeah. So I was relatively newly married and my salary was $60,000 a year, which I thought was an amazing salary. And let's see, I was really saving up money so that I could quit the job. Like all of my money from iPhone apps went just went straight into the bank. By the time that I did quit, it was a little over $20,000 that I had saved up specifically from iOS apps. And really, I wanted to go back to freelancing and, and doing apps and making products. And so that was 2011 that I quit. With and, the plan just to be a freelancer? Yeah, a freelancer and wherever that the iPhone apps took me. Okay. And I was it was basically like the cycle was build my own apps, promote them, talk about design, get more app design clients, you know, and kind of just play in this ecosystem. Where things really took off for me was the following year in September 2012, I wrote a book called The App Design Handbook, which was about how to design iOS applications. At the time, I think O'Reilly had a book out. But that was it. There, you know, so they're now like one traditionally published and one ebook on app design because everyone was talking about code. No one was talking about the design side. Wow. And I built up like a tiny little email list of 800 people on MailChimp. I had two goals for the book. One was to get freelance clients because I figured if I was the guy who wrote the book on app design, like people would hire me to do that. And the second one is that I wanted to make money from products and I followed people like Chris Gillibo and Tim Ferriss and others who were, were either doing digital products themselves or would like profile people who were doing it. And so I was like, oh, I want to be like that. And so I was hoping I could make $10,000 over the life of the book. It ended up making $12,000 on launch day and wow. then like 19000 by the end of the week. Wow. And I be like fell in love with the world of publishing, selling digital products, like having a blog, having an audience, a newsletter. I was like going, I remember talking to one friend who lives here in Boise because Boise has a very deep internet marketing community, which Mm -hmm. everyone flies under the radar, but bodybuilding.com, ClickBank, ClickFunnels, they're all founded here in Boise. And there's even more. Russell Brunson is the one who actually told me or taught me how to pronounce Boise because I kept hearing him talk so much. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So there's just so much here. And so a friend of mine, I was talking to him and I was like, yeah, email marketing is incredible. Like I, far rather have an email subscriber than a Twitter follower or Instagram. And he's just like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, we've all known that since 2002. But like, (laughs) good job. Like, do you want a gold star? Like, what do you mean? And then, you know, this is 2012 or whatever. How do you make 19,000 on your first ever campaign selling a book? Like, what what was the the breakthrough result? Yeah, so there were a few things. I built up the audience. And so like 800 email subscribers. Now I'm like, the tendencies to think 800 is so small. But really like 800 people is a lot. So that was the first thing. The second thing is I did a ton of guest blogging. The day that the book came out, I published posts on all the top interface design posts or like sites, websites like Smashing Magazine that were big in the web design space, all kinds of stuff like that. I think I had maybe 10 or 12 guest posts go live that same day. I was trying to make as big of a splash as possible. Wow. Yeah, that's great. So you timed them all. That was inspired by an article that Tim Ferriss had written about launching the four hour body, 
when he had done that, that same thing. And I remember like he was writing about what was fascinating to me is that there's like sort of this narrow view of the four hour body, right? It's a health and fitness book. So you can publish like his partnership with bodybuilding.com made lots of sense, but like, what would he ever write for the Basecamp blog? Hmm. Well, obviously he would write something about how he used Basecamp to organize all the work for this like crazy complicated research driven book. And so it's just this example of like, Oh, if I want to talk about this thing, I can do it in a different lens for all these different audiences and make something that's relevant to them. So that, that's what I was trying to do. Okay. And that was enough to bring in essentially, I mean, you must have sold $19,000 worth of an ebook. You can't be charging more than $20, well, $30, right? For okay. So that's the other thing. Tiered pricing is like the most important thing. And I actually wrote a lot about pricing strategy and that sort of thing in 2013, basically. And so what I did is I charged $29 for the book. And then I had an, an additional package at $79 that had like some videos and training, you know, some of my like individual templates, Photoshop files, interface builder things. And then for $149 was the price that I went with. I had like a complete package that had the whole toolkit of what I used to design apps. And so I did the math on that later and it it more than doubled the revenue of if I had just had a single $29 ebook. Yeah. So that was the thing that I became known for like preaching across the internet was like have multiple price points, not just charge (laughs) more, but like let people self-select because actually the very first buyer of the app design handbook was a designer at 37 signals and they bought the complete package. And it was one of those things Mm -hmm. where we realized like, Oh, they've got the company credit card to them. $29 and $149 are the same number. You know, until it gets right. over $300, $500, you know, something like that. The income expense report is like still just forward the receipt, you know. Mm-hmm. And actually, Patrick McKenzie, who goes by Patio 11 all over the internet, he said something that was interesting as I was thinking about charging for content, right? He was saying that no HR manager wants to write a payroll check that has researching free stuff on the internet in the memo <laughs> line. Right. right. Well, he's like, why would you buy that book? Why would like, it's free on YouTube or it's free over here. And it's like to someone doing it as a profession, like their time, nothing is free, you know? And so if you can give the most condensed version up front, and in this case, like they could buy the book that would tell them how to do it, or they could buy the complete package that would have like all the templates and everything else. So they could do it X amount faster than they're like, great. Because mm. the company cares more about pace of the project than they care about the cost to get the incremental cost. Yeah. That's interesting. It kind of, you have to marry the, you know, the right type of audience where you manage to reach these decision makers within companies, not Mm -hmm. just, you know, your hobbyist at home who might think 150 is five meals versus $30, one meal, or they're used to buying books and not everything else. But then you, you get like a leader at a company or someone where it's just like you said, an expense to them. Yeah. It's nothing. And then like, it's better to buy something bigger that takes less time to, to learn from. So, yep. but take us forward. So it sounds like you became a full-blown information marketer at that point. Like I you did. said, so blog, email list, uh, how far did you go with that? Was it was a huge sales funnel worth of various products and, and so on? Or I was never deep in that world. Like, cause there's two sides of it, right? The direct response marketers who are like the pros at funnels and everything else. And there's the bloggers who are like at the extreme would be like, I made this thing. I hope you like it. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, the magic of the internet is you can make a crazy amount of money doing both. It's just one is very sophisticated and the other is like, <laughs> you know, very casual. So I was somewhere in the middle. I ended up writing two more books 
one about designing web applications that had twice as big of a launch to a you know 3,000 subscriber email list. And then later I wrote a book about self-publishing and about my techniques and all of that, which I feel like every information marketer goes from like their thing to then talking about how they did their thing, you know? (laughs) So I also went on that, that journey, but my, maybe taking a step back, there's a blog by someone who's now a friend, Jason Cohen, who founded WP engine. And he has a blog called a smart bear. And in like early 2011, there were two designers who published design eBooks on the same day, Sasha grief and Jared Drysdale. And they had very different pricing strategies, but they showed up in the same community. Sasha was charging like $3 or $6 for his like little book on UI design. And Jared had like a full ebook that he was charging either $29 or $39, something like that. And they like both showed up on Hacker News at the same day. And so Jason Cohen saw this and was like, this is fascinating. Like you have wildly different strategies. Both of you come on my blog and explain why the, like why your strategy is better than the other person's. And so they did. And there's just these great, simple, transparent posts. Like they're not trying to sell anything. They're just just explaining it. And I read that. Oh, the other thing is like Sasha made like seven grand in 48 hours and Jared made like eight or 9,000. And so like just remarkably close numbers and with small audiences, right? I remember hearing like the guys at Basecamp, they're like, yeah, we self-published our book. It made $400,000. And like, there's nothing relatable about that. But for me getting going, it was super relatable to be like, oh, a designer just like me with no audience could do this thing and it could make seven or $10,000. And so what was funny is that I did all my stuff and then I went on Jason's blog some number of months later and was like, they're both wrong. Here's the best <laughs> pricing strategy, which is really the combination. Charge a lot of money like Jared was doing and use multiple packages so that people could self-select. You know, it's like, look, I did way more sales than they did with an even smaller list because of smart pricing. Right. And that's where I got into, like people were asking me more about packaging and pricing and self-publishing and all of that, even though they were asking about design because I'd just been transparent all the way along. And so you, oh, you asked how big that business got. Yeah. Uh, I got to the whole thing, the teaching of the design part and the teaching of selling products part. I got it to about $250,000 a year. Okay. And then it basically stayed at that level until actually in 2013 is when I started ConvertKit. I was using MailChimp, became fascinated by like email marketing best practices, thought about switching to Infusionsoft because that's what everyone was using at the time. But I was like teaching user experience and it felt criminal to be like a user experience you know, expert and using a clunky tool like Infusionsoft. And so <laughs> yeah. I just decided, okay, I'm going to build my own. Uh, and that's when ConvertKit started. And it was a okay. long road to get going, but you know that was eight and a half years ago now. Yeah, okay. No, I can see the, the connecting threads there. So yeah. you're an information marketer. You understand this world of small business creative people who can do a lot with small mm-hmm. audiences. You're also in the design space. That was your original teaching space. And it's true. Infusionsoft, I remember when I was considering them, it had this nickname of Confusionsoft because yeah. of how confusing <laughs> yeah. it was to to get you know, started with it. You need to hire someone just to learn how to use it. So you're a design guy. You're not going to like enter that world. It feels like you're you know going against the rules. There's a little bit of a jump though to then say, I know, I'm just going to create my own next level email autoresponder platform and it's going to be very design 
orientated, easy to use, which I do remember actually when ConvertKit first broke out, it was kind of attached to that idea, easy to use, uh, yeah. intuitive, simple. But it's a big difference between selling an ebook to creating a SaaS uh, right. platform. Plus, like you said, Infusionsoft, I mean, at this point in time, there's Aweber, ActiveCampaign, MailerLite, MailChimp. Oh, God, there's so many. Uh, I, I contact. Using, yeah, I contact. Like campaign uh, the list goes on. <laughs> one shopping cart was one of my first ever one. There's just tons of email autoresponders plus next level ones where they're email autoresponders and basically CRMs with uh, customer management, checkout, shopping carts, affiliate programs, all that sort of stuff built in. So if people think it's confusing now, it was still confusing 10 years ago to make that choice yeah. of, of what platform <laughs> yes, to use. But you decided to make it more confusing and create another option, right? So take me through your testing. Cause I, like, how do you launch something like that? As a, Cause yeah. you kind of can do an MVP, but it needs to at least be able to do a lot. And that requires quite a bit of coding up front. There's potential to lose a lot of money to launch something that no one wants. So what was the early days of ConvertKit? Yeah, well, the first thing is I wanted to get back into making software. Cause I had had this, you know, I was gonna say a year long deviation in talking about software. It was really only like four or five months that part of my life was so condensed. Like I wrote multiple books, started ConvertKit and all in like a seven month, eight month period. Yeah. In a one year period, I wrote three books and started ConvertKit from like summer 2012 to summer 2013. And so it was just, I mean, I look back now, I'm like, I don't know how I was that prolific. <laughs> like and you were married, right? So you, you weren't like a yeah, single guy doing married this with a kid. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I have a nine year old now. <laughs> so, so, I do the math, it would have just been, your baby would have just been born around about that time. Yeah, I quit my job a week before my baby was born. And then you wrote three books and started to just, just Yeah, I don't know that that's the best timing, but you know, that's how life works. So let's see. Oh, as far as breaking down the problem, there were two problems that I was really frustrated by as like an ebook, self-published information marketer type person. One was giving away like a sample chapter or some content you know, later, like uh, Clay Collins and others, you know, would call it like a lead magnet. And that was surprisingly difficult to do. In MailChimp, you couldn't do it in the free version. In the paid version, you'd have to, like, I would actually use their translate function because you couldn't change the text of the, like, confirm your subscription button to say, like, download your free guide unless you, like, translated it to another language, which it was super hacky. And then I also wanted to be able to send a, you know, autoresponder, a series of emails timed to when you signed up. And that I felt like was really clunky. So I was really trying to solve those two problems. And later lead pages came out around the same time and, and like their lead boxes and all of that. And they solved the first problem. But that went from like email marketing platform to like two very specific problems that I'm trying to solve. And I actually designed an interface then for like, we later called them email sequences, you know, but an autoresponder that just had all the emails down the side with the timing that you could see there. And then in the center panel was the email itself. And so you could really edit it as a single flow, whereas every other tool would treat it as individual emails. You have to like fully click into the email, write it, and then fully exit. And so in Aweber, MailChimp, and Infusionsoft, it was just such a clunky process. And I remember like the UX side of me was like, this could be <laughs> so easy, like okay. tabs, you know? And so narrowing it down to those two problems really helped. It still took forever to get I guess, enough features to be able to compete. Like I remember even probably two years after I started, James Clear was a friend of mine, still is. And this was before like jamesclear.com and, and all of those days, 
he was just starting to get traction with that. And I was trying to get him to switch over to ConvertKit. And he did. He signed up and was like, wait, you don't even have a page to like list all your subscribers. You don't have like, there were so many things that were missing. And so he was like, basically like, I love you, but like, <laughs> this is not there yet. Yeah, yeah. And so it was a big deal when like four years later, I think in 2019, he moved his whole list over to ConvertKit. He was oh, like, okay, now this is a real product, <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. So like that, you know, MailChimp had been building their product for 15 years at the time, now 21 years. And so it's just, it's hard to catch up. So it took a long time to get that feature parity. So like, but how do you do that? Do you launch without the good features and then you have like a leaky bucket? You have a lot of churn because people are not happy? Is that what a you do? A crazy amount of churn. Okay. But what I did was narrow in on the specific features. This is a great way to put a form on your site that gives away an opt-in or something like that, or that has a free email course. So like the perfect use case was put this form on your sales page for a free sample chapter. You know, if someone puts in their email address, it immediately sends them a sample chapter and trade for opting in. And then it follows up with a timed email course. And ConvertKit was very good at that one or two problems, you know. Right. And like somewhere between bad and mediocre at all other forms of email marketing. Were you the only one coding it at the time? Yeah, so I did the design and all the front end and then hired out the Ruby and Rails development to a couple of different contractors. Okay. Um, so if we call this period maybe two years, like that period to get yeah. up to parity, at least with expected features in an email system, how does the business grow? Like do you, because if you're only solving a few features, I'm guessing a part of you is like, I don't want to promote too hard because we need to fix the leak right. with the churn, but I need to get cash flow to pay myself and pay the you know the developers. Yeah. How do you kind of balance your your marketing with product development and growth of a company? Yeah. So the early days I was trying to do content marketing because from the blogging world, I was like, this is amazing. It's a great way to sell ebooks. It must also be a great way to sell software. And it's not, at least not in the early days. And so it, I really struggled there. Like I think content marketing is amazing for selling established software. But we just had such a leaky bucket and you wouldn't get feedback, right? Because someone comes to your sales page, they're like, oh, this is interesting. And they decide not to buy and they hit the back button. But they never actually tell you why they didn't buy. And so it was about two years in, we were at 2000 a month in MRR, maybe less, 1500 somewhere in there. After working on this for two years. Mm-hmm. And I had this conversation with a friend in Heaton Shaw. We were at a conference together. And he was just like, look... You've been working on this for two years. You've been really successful with ebooks. You'll be successful with something else. This isn't working. Like you should shut it down and move on. And like when he said that, I I was really taken aback and surprised. But then he like let that sink in for a little bit. And he said, or like you can take this really seriously. Stop treating it like a side project. Because I was doing both, you know, the info marketing mm-hmm. content mm-hmm. business and convert it. He's like, or you can take it really seriously and like go all in, give it the time, money, and attention it deserves and build it into something remarkable. And that's ultimately what I ended up doing. So actually, I didn't shut down the info product side, but I just stopped working on it. And my idea was like, oh, we'll ca- like have passive income forever and it'll be amazing. And I was doing like 10000 a month on average without launches and that kind of thing. And then that so quickly went to 2000 a month. Like it dropped off very quickly. But that's when I hired someone, like put actually put our savings into ConvertKit. So like put 50 grand in and hired a full-time in-house engineer, like gave him equity, 
and then I started doing direct sales and, and basically started trying to do everything possible to win every account. And that's when we started to see growth. So we were at 2000 a month in January, 2015, which was just after that pivot. By July, we got to 15,000 in MRR. September was like 22,000. And then October was 45,000. November was 65,000, 70,000. And we closed out the year at 98,000 in MRR. And I was just annoyed that we couldn't get to an even 100,000. Fair enough. Then the next year, we went from 100,000 MRR to 500,000. Incredible. As like the flight, like it just, it felt like a rocket ship. Definitely want to know how that works. But just to go back, you said direct sales. So this sounds like it got you from two to 100,000 MRR, 98,000, sorry, not 100. Um, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> direct sales in my mind means you're on any platform you can think of and you see someone mentioned, I need an email autoresponder. Which one do you think I should use? And, and Nathan Barry rocks up and says, hey, have you heard about ConvertKit? You know, is, <laughs> yeah. is that kind of what we're talking about? Or I mean, I did some of that. But I always thought that like stalking Twitter mentions or something was like kind of weird and creepy. Actually, the Aweber team does it to us all the time. And we're just yeah. like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> go make your product instead of like trolling our mentions of ConvertKit on Twitter. But what I did is it started with positioning. So first we were like email marketing for people who have problems like this. And it was just really lame position that didn't resonate. And so a friend named Tim Grawl who has been in the book publishing world for a long time, just a remarkable human. He kind of called me out on that. And he's like, look, you're not getting traction. If you were to narrow down, like pick an audience, any, any audience and say like, you're the best email marketing tool for this narrow slice, then like you'll get traction. People will understand how to help you, where you're like, who to refer to and all that. And he wasn't intending that we go after authors, but I was, I was thinking of like the Chris Gillibos and Tim Ferriss of the world and stuff like that. And I was like, that's who we're building for. That's who I want to be. Like, great. ConvertKit is now email marketing for authors. And on one hand, that got us an immediate traction, which is really cool. Because now people would be like, oh, I have a whole community of authors. Do you want to come teach a workshop to them? You know, I have a friend who's an author. You know, like we got immediate traction. It turned out that a lot of it though was people who were like, it wasn't the author I was thinking of. It was the, my life dream is to have a fiction you know, like publish my novel on the Kindle store. Oh, but this is hard. Never mind me. Mm -hmm. Right. So we got immediate demand and then crazy high churn. And so my takeaway from that was that a niche is good. I just chose the wrong niche or I'm marketing, like positioning it wrong. So like three months later, we changed it to email marketing for professional bloggers and started going after the people who we're in a specific space. And I, and I looked at who we already had as customers. We had a paleo recipe blog. We had a men's fashion blog, a travel blog. Some of these others were like who had traction. I was thinking, okay, if I look at that one person and draw a bigger circle around them, who would I get? And so direct sales for me, it looked like going after paleo recipe blogs run by women. And so like there's, prob- there's probably a defined list. Like instead of trying to list all the recipe, like all the blogs or all the recipe blogs, like when now we're down to paleo recipe blogs and, and then the run by women or run by men distinguishment on there is that people tend to flock together with people like them. And so you can end up creating like big fish in a small pond or an echo chamber type thing. Like I, I got this email where someone maybe taking a step back. So what I would do 
is get a very specific list of people and then reach out to them all directly. I would follow them on Twitter. I would comment on their blogs. I would like interact in their circles and then send them cold outreach emails. Then, you know, try to get them to sign up. Uh, I'd be able to use the one anchor client that I had, like as a reference, mm-hmm. you know, basically like convert it used by people like, and I'm like name dropping someone who I know you already know because it's a small circle. Right. And so the direct outreach email would be like, Hey, I saw that you're using MailChimp. And I'm just curious. Is there anything that frustrates you with MailChimp? I asked cause I'm working on building a tool called ConvertKit in the space. I'd love to hear your feedback kind of thing. And they would always have a list of things that frustrated them. And it would magically be the same things that frustrated me because I had just come from using MailChimp and like, it's all the same problems. And so we go through that. One thing that happened in that process, I remember talking to a fitness blogger and she was like, it feels like everyone on the internet is switching to ConvertKit right now. And I remember going, okay, well, we're at $6,000 a month in recurring revenue. So I can definitively tell you, you know, and these are inside thoughts. These are not outside thoughts. Right. <laughs> yeah. I can definitively tell you that everyone on the internet is not switching to ConvertKit. And what I actually said was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, tell me more. And she basically went to talked about her mastermind group in that space and said like, well, so-and-so uses ConvertKit. And I'm like, I know they've been using ConvertKit for like six months. They're the reason that I'm going after this little space. Right. This person is thinking about it. This person is about to switch. And this person brought it up just the other day in our, on our mastermind. You know, and like, you create this echo chamber and this feeling in a tiny group of people mm-hmm. and got really good traction. Mm. Very smart. Cause the echo yeah. chambers online are really small. Like you, you feel like right. the internet's big, but you're actually spending your time in a couple of places where there's really only a few hundred to a few thousand people all talking to right. each other about the same subject. So if, if you're in there and four or five people keep talking about convert kit, it does feel like oh, everyone's switching to convert kit suddenly. Right. Yeah. And when, at a time when the numbers just aren't there. So that was kind of the, let's say up to 15,000 in MRR was a okay. lot of that. And I noticed then that every sale I made made the next sale a bit easier. And so like Paul Graham has the line about do things that don't scale. And I remember when I started direct sales, I was thinking like, I can't do this because it doesn't scale. I need to do like content marketing or paid advertising or something else. Right. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that getting customers, it just helps you get customers. And so whatever you can do to get those early ones, I mean, it doesn't even matter what else, what else you do. It's just like stack those wins. About the 15,000 mark, we got three customers on the same day. Actually, so we went from 10,000 MRR to 15,000 MRR in a single day in July. And it was all from wow. three new customers. One was a, a barbecue blog, like how to use your Traeger kind of thing. And they didn't end up being meaningful in the story. The second was a blog called Wellness Mama, which was very like, I remember looking for them and like they had the autocomplete in Google. Like you type wellness and it like autocompletes the Wellness Mama. I'm like, oh, you mm-hmm. must be, you know, you must be big. Big deal. So they were big in the health and wellness space. And then the, the third one was Pat Flynn. He signed up and it had been this long conversation with him actually through his best friend, Chris Ducker, who had started using ConvertKit like, a month or two earlier. So they signed up in the same day. And then what ended up happening is they started talking about it like a month or two months later. People were like, what tools are you using? And so in the health and wellness space, we had Katie and Seth with Wellness Mama talking about, oh, we're using ConvertKit in their mastermind groups. And then in the business space, Pat was over here talking about how he used ConvertKit. And so then it, that then it, like the flywheel started working and the buzz started really coming in. And a few months later, 
we launched an affiliate program and started doing webinars and and kept doing the sales, right? But it was basically the sales got all that initial momentum, maybe call it up to 20, 25,000 in MRR. Mm-hmm. And then that turned into just this pace of how fast everything was going. And it kind of blew up from there. So to go from 25 to half a million, you said by the end of this sort of, not the second year of your business, but the second year of this rapid of growth. Traction. Yeah, yeah, traction basically. Yeah, before you decided quit or stay. You called it a pivot earlier, but it's more like you just recommitted to this yeah. is my main business. <laughs> Obviously, I, when you say flywheel, in my mind, I understand you're saying so. We bring in more customers, which means they're more likely to talk about us, which brings in more customers. You're more likely to hit these, let's call them micro-influencers within an industry mm-hmm. like a Pat Flynn or the wellness blogger or barbecue plugger, whatever it might be, yep. which then, because they have mastermind groups, they're recommending you and, and it sort of spreads virally within these small pockets of industries. I can imagine you could do that forever, really, because you could just go from niche to niche doing like you were doing kind of direct, obviously you yeah. have to expand your team. You couldn't be the only person doing that. And then if you add the affiliate component, like you said, and I know this is probably where I started hearing about ConvertKit because suddenly, oh yeah, Pat's doing one of these JVs with uh, yeah. you know Nathan and then someone else was doing one and you're, you're suddenly, there's a, every day there's a ConvertKit show happening somewhere to an email newsletter, right? That happened within my echo chamber and I can imagine that could be within mm-hmm. other bubbles and different topics around the internet. Is that enough to get you all the way to half a million a year in run rate? That combined with doing webinars, you know, because what happens, like the affiliate program is driving a lot, but like most affiliates, you know, don't drive anything. You know, there's like, I think Chris Gilbert referred to it as the 98-2 rule, where it's like only 2% of your affiliates will ever make a single sale. Not even the 80-20 distribution, but like 98% are useless. And then because someone can promote at any time, they'll promote never or like, oh, I added it to my resources page, but like, yeah. what else am I going to do? And then a, a customer could sign up at any time, right? You could hear about ConvertKit in your echo chamber and you're like, great, yeah, that's on my list for never, <laughs> you yeah. know? And so a webinar really made an event and basically said, you know, sign up today. And that was really like those things together really drove the growth. And so that actually took us to, you know, 500,000 a month in revenue, which would be 6 million a year. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, I, I mean, we're actually ready in an hour, uh, Nathan. So I really want to just get, we're not even at 28 million a year run rate. So yeah. first, I just have to note the power of positioning. It really is amazing. You did enter a crowded space. You decided to create a great UI, a great user interface. And then you said, let's position this first for authors, then for bloggers. And then you kind of did like a sniper attack within different niches for blogging. So, and then webinars and affiliate marketing take you to half a million. I'm assuming your internal team is growing while all this is happening. You know, customer support staff, engineers, product, front end, back end. You're becoming less the jack of all trades founder guy to the, I'm the CEO and I hire people and do strategic big thinking decisions Maybe take us forward with, with that kind of preface from the $6 million a year business to where it is today and, and the $28 million. Do you just keep doing everything, hiring better team members and you're at $28 million? I mean, there's a lot that went into it. Somewhere in there, we started to figure out paid marketing as well. But, you say but we, yeah. you hire someone to figure it out, right? Yeah, is yeah. That, yeah. yeah exactly. We, we grew the team. Content marketing turned into a big thing. Like I tried it early on because that was what I came from, right? In the blogging world. And then it didn't work, so we moved away from it. And then, yeah, probably probably around that 
three hundred to five hundred thousand in MRR range, we started to invest in a blog. We did something different. We called we like named our blog. It's called Tradecraft. And we released like dedicated issues on a particular topic. So instead of like blogging continually, we said, okay, we're gonna put out one issue a month on like selling digital products, you know, on how to launch a podcast and something like that. And those got just really good traction, you know, mm. a lot of good backlinks. The advantage is you could make it a big launch. It was a launch of a free thing, but it was a big launch all the same and it was impactful. It came with like this beautifully designed PDF as well. So you could read on the web or anything like that. So it, it generated a lot of backlinks and a lot of attention. And that grew content marketing into a big channel for us. So actually our single biggest driver of traffic today is our Powered by Links. And right behind that would be organic search. Now, a lot of organic search is branded and it's kind of a pain to split those out, right? So you got to do that. But our highest organic search converts at double the rate that Powered by does. So as far as new, you know, free accounts, free trials signing up, search is the biggest by far. And a lot of it is from, you know, four or five years of investment. There's one other thing I'm not sure, like, I'm hesitating slightly because I don't know if I want to give away this tactic, but it's probably common enough that people do it now. One thing that we did is we started writing a lot of stories about the creators using ConvertKit. And so we would hire photographers to go to that creator's house, like do a whole photo shoot with them, which costs, you know, between $200 and $500 for us per story. And then one awesome thing is like, I feel like so many people as they work from home, they just don't have good photos for their website and they're never going to book the photographer and all that. So we do it for them. And so they'd leave, not only would we write the story and promote them, but we'd also be like, but here's all the photos and like you have the rights to them and, and use them wherever you want, use them in your site. So it's fun to go through like these creators' websites and be like, oh, that's from our photo shoot, you know, <laughs> on, like on their about page and whatever else. But we also started asking, hey, would you be up for it if we release these photos for free as part of our stock photo library on Unsplash. And pretty much everyone was like, yeah, totally. That's great. And so we just had these beautiful photos on Unsplash. And what happened is they started getting downloaded crazy numbers of times, 20 million times kind of thing. Whoa. Okay. And they're quite popular. And then they get used around the web. And so what our team does, like we, one of our contractors on our SEO team is there's a reverse image search for our more popular images and then just says like, hey, this is a photo from our library. Thanks so much for using it. You can totally use it without any credit. But if, you, you know, if you're up for it, would you mind adding a credit link to ConvertKit? And like, they make it totally clear that you don't have to. But the result is hundreds and hundreds of backlinks right. uh, to ConvertKit <laughs> and a very effective uh, link building strategy. Wow, that is, that is quite the link building hack. I would have never connected the dots between all those things. <laughs> yeah. And it's as long, I mean, it starts with photo shoots of creators and goes all the way through to, you know, a crazy number of backlinks. So your creators then are essentially models all over the internet now, yes. right? Because all their photos are being used. That's, that's hilarious. Yeah, and so, and we always say like, this is what it would mean. One of my favorite examples is a friend, Cortland Allen, who runs the site Indie Hackers. Indie Hackers, yeah. <laughs> and if you go through, I see him on other people's websites so often from the ConvertKit photo shoot because right. he just, you know, he's a black creator. He had this, in his photos, this amazing podcasting studio. It's got like the great mood in the photos. Just like the photos are fantastic. I would use them. Right. <laughs> you know, and we have used them in our marketing and everything. Like you go on Teachable's website and it's like, oh, there's our photo of Cortland, <laughs> you know, or like all of these things. <laughs> and it's just so funny. And uh, he and amazing. I were, were joking about that on the Indie Hackers podcast of how like, he's he like, yeah, famous. 
Now I'm all over the internet. Yeah. He ended up on a billboard somewhere for some oh like random product. Uh, okay. One of the other aspects I know, like I was talking yeah. regarding you being like now a CEO of a, you're not, not a venture back startup. One of the things you deliberately did, but is not, you know, take on investors. You've been you know, bootstrapped or cash flow yeah. grown the entire time. I have two questions. I want to do this in order. So just to bring it back to you growing as your company grew, mm-hmm. how hard has it been to be the founder, but then your company is so much bigger now, you know, more money, more customers, more team members, your role must have completely changed. How has that evolution been for you? Yeah, there's a moment, our very first team retreat, we were 21 people. We were in this period of crazy growth. It was also really stressful because, you know, our app was going down. We had a denial of service attack against us. We were fighting spammers. We were, you know, just like all kinds of stuff. But we finally gathered in the mountains of Idaho for the first time. And I remember sitting there, like we're in this big living room of like kind of this lodge house place. And I remember looking around and realizing like, okay, who's going to kick this off? Like we're all here. Oh, you're all, you're looking at <laughs> <to> you. <laughs> oh, I'm the Oh, okay. Here we go. You know, and it being the thing of like, okay, I got to lead this group. And it was super uncomfortable at first. Like I'm very introverted by nature. That's part of the reason I love work from home. Also, the reason I love blogging because I go to conferences and people like want to talk to me instead of me having to like put out effort to talk to them, you know? Yeah, being there. Yeah. <laughs> it's the ultimate hack. And so that was a big adjustment. And it's still something where even with a team now of over 65 people, I still would rather be more in the background. But I think that also helps because then you're not the voice that's dominating every conversation. You know, you, you get these leaders who are like, I'm the most important thing, you know, like, listen to me. And probably stifled a lot of growth and conversation that would happen otherwise. So that was a big transition. There were other things of like just skills on reading a room, reading emotions and conversations, understanding like it's not just about being right. It's about the connection or things like that. And so one of our executives, her name's Ashley and she's been with the company for five and a half years now. So she was here through like that crazy period of growth. She was really good at later, like pulling me aside and be like, okay, do you remember in that conversation when you said this, did you notice that person's face? No. What, what was there to notice? And then she's like, okay, so next time, you know, and like just giving some of that feedback of like, I mean, it ultimately comes down to like, here's how you connect with people. Here's how you lead people. Things that I just hadn't, hadn't learned. Mm-hmm. I would say like skills around listening and decision-making because there's a difference between, I used to think that if I truly listen to you, or the way to demonstrate that I truly listen to you is that now I agree with you, hmm. which can't be always be true. Because what if I don't agree with you? Hmm. And so then, do you then not feel heard? And so, building skills around being able to truly listen and then being able to like make the case for your argument better than you just did. And then, in that, being able to communicate my own decision. And it can be totally fine that's different from that. But I've demonstrated that I didn't go like, yeah, 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 thanks. And like, go on with my thing. So those have all been leadership skills that have come over time. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to it. It's quite the journey. And right. it, I don't know, it's hard, yeah, but it's coming along slowly. I imagine you've spent way more time hiring people recently than you've been front-end designing convert kits, you know, at interface or things like that. 
Yeah. Is that a fair? Well, like another example of that is we have like five full-time designers on the team between the marketing and product side of things. And I had a whole conversation with one of our designers and it was so tempting to want to dive in to like the details of the design. And it's a big change that we're making. We're changing some of the navigation in ConvertKit. And so there's like a lot that goes into it. And we had to take a step back and instead like design a process. And basically what I had to think is like, okay, if I'm not here in the next conversation, what's the process that I want him to follow? And so we like went down, what are we optimizing for? What problems are we solving? Like really work through that and solve the process. And it was all about like, forget the problem. The problem turned into just an example of how to implement the process. And then in that case, like it gave me confidence that when it's him and another designer and I'm not anywhere around, they'll follow the process rather than going to their opinions. Mm. And I like almost dove in and went to my opinions, which would have completely shortchanged like what I'm trying to do long-term in the company. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. Yeah, it's, And it's, then kind of the last thing on that sure. is I then realized, okay, that was great. That was one a one-on-one interaction. I now have a designer who most of the time is going to think that way, which is great. But then what I did is I wrote out that entire conversation interaction that we had. I wrote it into a post and shared it with the entire team so that they could all see an example of thinking about like process versus opinion, you know, so that I could like take that learning and try to pass it on to 65 people instead of just one-on-one. Right. So it's trying to find as many of those moments as possible. Yeah. So from you changing to a one-on-one interaction, so that can carry forward with them without you Mm -hmm. to then the whole thing carrying forward to the whole team without you and keeping everyone (laughs) on track. It's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a task. I'd love to know in terms of both the future growth and, and your past growth, your decisions around, like I was reading an article last night, for example, you were initially all about reinvesting profits and doing profit share with your mm-hmm. team. And then you more recently switched to now you're actually worth wanting to share some of the equity within your company so that when there is an exit or when there is some kind of windfall from even a, a float on the stock market or something like that, Mm-hmm. Not just you get rich, your your team members will get rich, the ones who especially have been there the longest, which is different than just sharing profits. So there's that and there's you have never taken on investment. So like the acquisition you recently did when I was reading about that, you pointed out the fact that you had to purchase that new company using the cash flow the, or the profits sitting yeah. in the bank from operating the company, not from what you've taken on from investors or any kind of you know loan facility. So... Tell me about your whole philosophy around capitalization, equity ownership, even venture capital, because uh, one of the things I know you and I were talking about behind the scenes that you've actually gone to the point now where you're bringing in more investors who are on a secondary, possibly mm-hmm. to then help some of the staff who did get equity if they want to exit some of their shareholdings now. So there's potentially new owners, small owners obviously would come yeah. in which then influences your future decisions. And then why wouldn't you go and get metric capital? Because you could probably raise at a maybe half a billion dollar valuation right now and just drop 30 to $50 million into your, your bank account to then rapidly continue to grow. So what is your thinking around all this around capital and money? Yeah. Yeah. Great questions. So first, I'm not... I don't know what the word is to put on with it, but like I'm not against venture capital in the sense that a lot of people are of like, You'll see these articles of like from the bootstrapped software community of like venture capital is evil, it's everything that's wrong with the world. And like, I don't think that. I just think it's a matter of choosing what's right for your business. 
and being really clear on what outcomes that you want. My thing took me a few years to get to this point. So I don't want to like project the idea that I had crystal clarity on this from day one of finding ConvertKit. Because I actually tried when we were at that 100,000 a month mark, I tried to go raise venture capital. Like I went down to San Francisco, met with six or seven different investors and ultimately decided both I was bad at pitching and didn't get any term sheets. And also I was talked out of raising by a friend who was basically like, no, you have the growth like six year in path, which I'm very thankful for now. That friend being Mike McDermott, the CEO of FreshBooks. And so big, big shout out to Mike. <laughs> so let's see. The biggest thing, or I guess two sides of it, know where you want to go and know who you want to answer to. So I see all these people optimizing for the destination, the destination being selling the company, retiring, starting the next thing, whatever, any of that. And they're willing to put up with a lot to get to that destination. I kind of don't think that they ought to put up with like a pretty sucky life of working super hard, putting up with coworkers that they don't want any of those things. And it's all about like, I got to get to this, like this sucks now, but we'll sell the company in two years or we'll IPO. And then like, I'll go live on a beach. And I just feel like life is too short to do that. There's no, that like grind it out and put up with things for any purpose is not worth it. And so I think about optimizing for the journey. And I think that you'll live a better life. It'll be more true to your values and all of that if you optimize for the journey. And so in that, It's like, how can I have the biggest impact now? How can I do the work that I want to do now? And the other side is, who do I answer to? And so if you're raising capital, you answer to those investors. Whereas if you are, if your investors are your customers, you know, if they're the ones providing all your cash flow, then you answer to your customers and to your team and to yourself rather than to this outside group. So you're able to think much more long-term. You're not at risk of like, if you miss two quarters of earnings in a row, like the board is going to remove you as CEO and appoint someone else. Which happens a lot. <laughs> Which happens a lot. And you know, and to be fair, it's not always a bad thing. Like often there's a lot of people who should start companies and are not meant to scale companies. True. And who knows, I might be one of those people, but I don't have a board that can remove me. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> all of that's really interesting to think about. And I just, I wanted to build something that where we served creators. You know, we started this conversation talking about musicians and artists. I don't have to justify to a board or something that the best financial opportunity is to go after music versus say like enterprise email marketing clients. I can say, I think the most enjoyable journey that will also have financial upside is to go after music, you know, and that's what I'm optimizing for. So that's one side of it. The next thing you're talking about was the team side of profit sharing versus equity. I went into it thinking, If I'm optimizing for the journey, then I don't have an exit in mind. So equity does not have value. And this is something that Jason Fried and David Hennemeyer Hansen from Basecamp preached a lot. I now think it's nonsense. I don't know if we swear on this podcast, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but I think that it's nonsense. And so like you should always be trying, everything you do should be trying to build equity in something, right? That's how wealth is created is through equity rather than just income. And so what I realized is that if we build a valuable company, someone will always want to own part of it. Either the company will want to buy back those shares from someone who wants to sell, or there will be another investor or another friend or someone else who comes in and wants to buy some of those shares. And so basically, like we can provide liquidity for those team members one way or another without having to change 
our journey and without having to compromise that side of things. And there's companies like Atlassian, you know, that built this massive, entirely bootstrapped, almost entirely bootstrapped company. And in that process, you know, they ultimately did an IPO, but a few years before an IPO, they raised 200 million in entirely secondary equity so that a bunch of the team could cash out some shares. So I guess another important point, like ConvertKit's company mission is we exist to help creators earn a living. And part of my like life mission is to help as many friends, families, coworkers, humans I'm connected with in any way become financially independent. Growing up poor, that like when I realized that making money is a skill that you can get good at and it's a, a set of principles, then it's like, great, let's make this available to everyone. And so once I realized that ConvertKit was going to get to the point where it would be more money than I ever needed, knew what to do with. And it was like, okay, it's time to give equity to the team and make sure they can participate in that upside. So there's a lot in there, but I basically changed my perspective over time and plan to keep changing it of like continuing no to doubt. issue more and more equity to the team. You alluded to secondary offering. It's hard to figure out how to talk about one because I'm not like super, I don't have the exact language on public solicitation which is you get into SEC rules and yeah. and stuff like that. So this is not at all me saying people should buy shares and, and convert it. But <laughs> something that we realized we could do is help facilitate if there were outside investors, friends, people in the industry who wanted to buy shares from current and former team members who wanted to sell, that we could help facilitate that transaction. And that doesn't put us on a path where we have to sell. That doesn't change anything about it, about the company. Because we're like... Look, it's a couple percent of the company that's changing hands. It's going from one third party to another third party. There's no voting rights, no liquidation preferences that come with that. And at the same time, it gives people an opportunity to, to own a share of a company that I really believe in long term. And so that's been a cool thing. It started with uh, Dharmesh Shah, who's the CTO of HubSpot, who's been a longtime friend, who he just emailed and was like, Hey, I was listening to you on a podcast talking about this problem. What if I just bought a million dollars for the shares from former team members? And I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, and then it sort of <laughs> snowballed into this bigger thing. Yeah. So that's kind of where we're at. The hard thing is there will be this narrative that like ConvertKit has like raised funding or something like that. True. And this is not at all accurate. So that's where I was like, it's hard to know how much to talk about it without like casting the wrong narrative. You're right. Don't want to stoke the flames there too. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so last last four minutes. I know you, you got to run off, uh, Nathan. Ties in perfectly. So, what is the next step for yourself and ConvertKit? Given so you're not thinking venture capital exit, got to grow to a billion dollar mm -hmm. valuation. You're not in a hurry. You're focused on the journey, like you said. So, making an acquisition to buy a music company is fun as well as a good growth decision. Maybe yep. not as good a growth decision as, like you said, enterprise clients or something like that. But where does this go next? And and are you, I'm assuming you still do want to grow. It's just you're not mm -hmm. running to a billion dollar X valuation IPO as soon as possible, but maybe yeah. an IPO one day or or what, what are you planning for your future? Yeah, I'm certainly not opposed to an IPO so long as we get to maintain our, our direction. I think there will be a lot of companies that I think markets will continue to shift so that IPOs become even more accessible. Like if you think back to like when Pixar IPO'd in the early 90s, like IPOs happened at so much smaller of a scale than mm. today. It's like, if you don't have 100 million ARR and 110% net revenue retention and like, you know, all of these things, you can't IPO. And I think that will change. Like the long-term stock exchange, things that AngelList and Carta are doing, 
you'll get a lot more options there and it'll become more normal, which will be great. Like sometime in the future, you know, you'll be able to buy shares in companies like ConvertKit or Teachable or some of the other things in an app like Robinhood, which will be, I think, fantastic. So there's that side of it. The biggest thing is to just build for the long term and like serve creators above all else. So I think about like we launched a product last year called ConvertKit Commerce, which is really expanding our footprint quite a bit to allow you to sell digital products, sell those eBooks and, you know, email courses and songs and behind the scenes footage and whatever else directly to your audience. And that's going to be a huge new revenue stream for us because now we actually get a cut of all the payment revenue because we are our own payment processor. And so that's going to be really exciting, you know, and you see companies like Shopify with shop pay and teachable has the same thing and, and other companies, right. They're adding this in and customers don't feel like they're paying anymore because they were just paying a credit card fee before. And now they're paying a credit card fee and it's actually substantial revenue for the business that, you know, the gross merchandise volume GMV is, is really meaningful. So let's see, you're asking what's next. It's basically keep building the company for the next decade and see where it takes us. I am both an active competitor with MailChimp and a huge fan because I think you look at MailChimp and so many companies sell early on, right? You look at MailChimp and they're like, what if we did this for like 20 years straight? So I think of it as like, okay, I'm on, I'm eight years into a 20 year journey. We're at 28 million a year in revenue. I think we're still more revenue than MailChimp was when they were eight years into their journey. And so it's like, I think there's, there's a huge potential for upside compounding is wildly powerful. And so like, let's just give it, you know, (laughs) plenty of time to compound. And so that's what I'm thinking about. Okay. Awesome. Well, Nathan, I know we're actually uh, right on the money for uh, the time we had websites. So obviously convertkit.com and and nathanberry.com would be the two you're you're happy to share. Anything else you'd want to share? Yeah. I'd say follow me on Twitter and then for nathanberry.com. I guess check out two things. I have a podcast called the art of newsletters, which is where I interview bunch of people from like Sam Parr who runs The Hustle to Morning Brew to basically all my favorite people who run newsletters. And then I have my own newsletter where I talk about behind the scenes of the company. What else? I I like talking about money. That's one of my like, (laughs) no one ever talks about money. And so I feel like a private (laughs) newsletter is a great place to do that. So anyway, that's at nathanberry.com. And then if you follow me on Twitter, that's where I'm most most active on social networks. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the time and, and just keep up the good work. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Wow, what a fantastic story there from Nathan. I really appreciate him sharing so much detail in the rapid growth phase of ConvertKit. I was taking notes. I was thinking about things I would do uh, for my own startup, thanks to the ideas that Nathan was sharing. I hope you were too. I think Nathan's company, ConvertKit, is going to well and truly continue to grow. I suspect it will be a billion-dollar company. It may even stay private, like he was talking about MailChimp being an inspiration. They're well and truly over a billion-dollar valuation if, if they were publicly listed. They're not either. So I think Nathan's inspired by that idea of just keep on bootstrapping, keep on growing your successful startup. No need to take on investors. No need to go public. You can just stay in control, not have that responsibility. So there's a good chance it's going to become a billion or even multi-billion dollar company with Nathan still in charge, or maybe not. Who knows? Time will tell. It's a story that's still going, but I'm really glad to lock in this part of the journey now in the Vested Capital podcast. So I hope you feel the same. 
Now, if you did find this episode helpful, insightful, and you'd like to share it with people, or maybe even speaking of a specific person, a family member, a friend, a colleague, or a new entrepreneur, maybe there's a person in your life that is starting a new software business, a SaaS business, and they could benefit from hearing this story, especially get some insight into growth hacking, an early stage startup that like where Nathan talked about when they were in the early stage, share this episode with them. It's Vested Capital episode number 10. You can find it by just searching for Vested Capital or my name, Yaro, Y-A-R-O, in your podcast app. So get your phone out. You can open up whether it's your Apple player or your Google player or Spotify or any of the third party ones. Um, there's Amazon Music as well. Tune in. Stitcher, lots of places. The show is on every single one of those. All you have to do is search for it. And then look for number 10, episode number 10 with Nathan Berry. You can also go to my blog, yaro.blog. Click the podcast tab. You'll find all the subscribe buttons are there. Plus all the past episodes are available. And I do recommend when you're in your app, and you've got Bested Capital open, if you haven't done so already, there'll be a plus button or a follow button or a subscribe button. Click that and that'll make sure you get every new episode when I release it as soon as it's released, as well as an access to all the past episodes you can download or stream anytime you like. Just look for Vested Capital again if you have not done so already. Thanks again for listening to this episode. My name is Yarrow and I'll talk to you on the very next episode. Bye-bye.